as a church, we are about to start a, a series of sermons and um, home group meetings, as Dave has been saying, called uh, The Real Jesus. Um, and this real Jesus is designed to answer the, and I quote, the most important question that you will ever ask. And that is the question, who is Jesus? Who is the real Jesus? Not the Jesus that many people make up for themselves in their mind. Um, many people like to think of Jesus as a, a good teacher or a spiritual man or an enlightened one. Uh, even a Buddha in a, in a long line of Buddhas. And I say that some people like to think of Jesus in those terms because people want a convenient Jesus. They want a Jesus that won't challenge them in their sinful lifestyle and stand in judgment of them in any way. He can teach some great truths. He can heal some people. He can tell some really wise parables. But as soon as we start saying that he is the sovereign of all creation, that he's the judge of the living and the dead, that he himself will tread the grapes of the wrath of Almighty God, and that salvation is only possible through him, well, then people start getting offended because that's not the Jesus they want. <clears throat> and others, uh, like the Muslims, will say that uh, Jesus was a prophet. Uh, to, the, to the Muslim, um, Allah does not have a son. Jesus was not the son of God. He was just a prophet, and in fact, when the prophet Muhammad came, he superseded the prophet Isa, or Jesus, that he was more important than Jesus. But who do you say that Jesus was? Because there's many such opinions of who Jesus was. And in fact, even amongst those of us who call ourselves Christians, there are still many distorted views of who Jesus was. And as you, you ponder this question of, of who was Jesus, you are immediately faced with two other equally important questions. Uh, two questions which why, uh, we by necessity have to answer if we're going to answer the, the question who is or who was Jesus. And these two questions firstly are, why does it matter anyway? You know, is Jesus even relevant to you? Because I could ask you the question, well, who's Bob Taylor, who lived in Scotland 500 years ago? Well, you don't know who he was, and you don't care who he was. It's irrelevant. So is Jesus relevant to you? Because until you believe that Jesus Christ is relevant to your life, you'll never bother finding out who Jesus was. Second question. Uh, incidentally, the first question is what I would like to address this morning. Why is it important for us to know who Jesus was? But there is a second question, which is equally important. We don't have time to address that this morning. That's the question of, well, if we agree that it is important to know who Jesus was, then how are we supposed to know? On what basis do you stake your opinion of who Jesus was? If, if the most important question you're ever going to ask in life is, who is Jesus, then where are you supposed to find an answer to that question? And that is, a, that is a good question. It's a relevant point. Where do you find a reliable, truthful answer to the question, who is Jesus? Now, we don't have time to address that this morning. That's for another time. But I will point you to the answer. 
Because the answer to both of these questions, why is it important to know Jesus and how are we supposed to find out about Jesus? Both of these questions are actually answered by Jesus himself. And they are answered both in many places through the scriptures, but in John chapter 5, which is going to be our text for this morning, John, uh, Jesus answers both of these questions. So if you could uh, turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 5, please. And we're going to read the first uh, 15 verses together by way of, of context, uh, by way of introduction, just to get the context of the conversation or the argument that then ensues between Jesus and the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, etc. So let's read the first 15 verses of John chapter 5 together. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these uh, lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. What a pathetic picture. Jesus said to him, rise up. Take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. Hallelujah. And that day was the Sabbath. Ooh, this is what started all the trouble. It was the Sabbath day when Jesus did this. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, he who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. After, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So these two questions set before us, uh, why and how, we're going to be addressing why this morning, as I've said, and with those as preliminary remarks, it is my intention to demonstrate to you today from the ensuing conversation that Jesus has with the Jewish leaders that the most important thing in life is knowing Jesus Christ. So that from the scriptures you will be convinced and understand the claim of Paul the apostle when he said he had counted all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. He said, I've counted everything as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus. Can we come to such a conviction today? Yes, we can, and we will come to it 
by studying the scriptures. So the short answer to our question today, why is it important to know Jesus? The short answer is this, that if what Jesus claimed about himself is in fact true, if the claims that he made are true, then what you believe about Jesus Christ will have eternal ramifications to your life. We're talking about the difference between spending eternity in heaven with pleasures at God's right hand for eons and eons of time versus spending eternity in hell, suffering eternal torment and wrath and punishment for our sins for billions of ages without end. If if what Jesus said about himself is true, the stakes could not be higher. And so I want us to look through the following verses. We're going to work through from verse 16 through to verse 30 together. And as we go through, I want us to see the claims that Jesus made about himself. And as we go through, there are 10 claims of Christ that I want to comment on. So let's begin. Claim number one, Jesus claimed to have authority over sickness, paralysis, and disease. I'm so glad that Dave called people to stand this morning for healing because Jesus Christ claimed to be able to heal everyone who is sick. We've actually already seen that claim in the scriptures that we've read. Verse 6, Jesus says to this man, do you want to be made well? And then in verse 8, he follows up that question by saying, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, that's not the claim of a normal man. You don't walk up to a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years and say to him, do you want to be made well? Well, rise up, take up your bed, and walk. But guess what happened when he told the man, rise up, take up your bed and walk. He rose up, he took in his bed and he walked. Can Jesus still heal today? Why do we pray? Well, if Jesus rose from the dead and he's the same yesterday, today and forever, then he can still heal today. And he will heal when it will bring him glory to do so. Not everyone gets healed and that's okay. Jesus went to the pool that day. There were many people sick there. But he sought out one man, and this man wasn't looking for Jesus. You can't say of this man it was his faith who made him well. Jesus went and sought him out in his compassion, in his sovereign election of who he wanted to heal that day. And that's okay. God has the right to glorify himself when he wants to glorify himself. And in fact, for the, for the Father to glorify the Son and for the Son to glorify the Father is not some kind of uh, sort of, you know, deistic pride. It is right that God should seek to glorify himself because he is infinitely praiseworthy and glorious. Anything less would be sin on his behalf if he did not seek to glorify himself. Claim number two. And here we begin from verse 16. This is the second claim Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. Let's look at verse 16 to 18. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus because he had healed on the Sabbath, and they sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. 
Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also he said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus claimed to be the son of God. Perhaps better said, Jesus claimed to be God the son. Jesus claimed to be the second member of the eternal trinity, this Godhead, this triune God, three persons in one being, God Almighty, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus claimed to be the second member of that trinity, God the Son. That's why the Jews try to kill him. He wasn't saying, I'm a son of God, like all of us as Christians are sons and daughters of God. No, he was saying, I am God the Son, and that's why they sought to kill him, because he was claiming equality with God. If you claim to be equal with God, you're claiming to be God. But there is something else that I want you to see in the statement that he makes in these verses. The Jews had persecuted Jesus because he'd healed a man on the Sabbath that he was working on the Sabbath. And in response to that criticism from the Jewish leaders, Jesus made the following highly controversial claim. He says, you think we're not allowed to work on the Sabbath? He said, listen, my father has been working until now, and I've been working. To the Jewish mind, that was absolute blasphemy, that God would have been working. And effectively, Jesus was saying that you Jews, you think that the works of God are complete. You think that this whole thing of God reaching man and justifying man and saving a group of people, you think it's all been accomplished in you, the Jews, because you've got the book of Moses and you follow all these little laws to the nth degree. But you've got no love in your hearts. You think that God's work has been complete in you. Listen, I've got news for you. God's work of justification in the world, his plan of salvation through history is far from complete. He has been working until now. And I, since I've been on the earth, I've been working. God's plan of salvation is very different to what you think. Jesus was saying to the Jews. And not only that, the second thing that Jesus was saying is the Sabbath is not what you think it is. You people think the Sabbath is a day just to sit around and do nothing. But Jesus claimed that he was Lord of the Sabbath. Not only that, Jesus claimed that the the Sabbath was something far more complex. As we read through the breadth of the New Testament, we, we start to understand what the Sabbath was all about. Jesus said, In another place, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. He said, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. What is all this mystery around the Sabbath? Well, in the book of Colossians, it's explained to us. And I'd like to read you. You don't have to go this from Colossians chapter 2. It's explained. What is the meaning of the Sabbath? So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. Let no one judge you regarding Sabbaths. Whether you keep the Sabbath, whether you don't keep the Sabbath, let no one judge you. Why? Because these are shadows of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. The substance of the Sabbath is Christ himself. He is the Sabbath. 
Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. The resting from our works and having peace with God. The Sabbath was just a type, a shadow of the salvation that would come in Jesus Christ. You know, before I got saved, I I would think, I used to think in terms of like a scale. I always believed in God. But I, I, I kind of had this view that if I did enough good things, that it would sort of outweigh the bad things. And if I, if I went and got drunk or did something stupid, then that would sort of weigh the scale the other way again. And then I had to go and do some, maybe read my Bible a bit and do something good, it would weigh the scale back again. And it was constantly back and forth in my life until one day someone preached the gospel to me and said, by the works of the law, no man shall be justified. You cannot earn your way into heaven. We are sinful, every one of us, and the judgment has already been passed, guilty. But then they said to me that Christ had come and he had become my righteousness for me. He had purchased rest. And that through faith in him, I could rest from all of my works and be justified through faith in him. That's that's what the Sabbath was a picture of. Jesus said, don't think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I didn't come to destroy. I came to fulfill So Jesus didn't destroy the Sabbath. On the contrary, he fulfilled the Sabbath. He is the Sabbath rest to all who trust in him. So that's the second claim of Jesus. He claimed to be the son of God and he claimed to be the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Claim number three, Jesus claimed that he had been sent by God and that he maintained unbroken fellowship with God. Let's read verses 19 and 20, and then we can skip down and read verse 30. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For for as, did did I start at the wrong verse? 19 and 20, huh? sorry, let's start at verse 19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he, the Father, does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he'll show him greater things that you may marvel. So, in other words, Jesus was claiming to be perfectly sinless, to be perfectly righteous. He said, whatever the Father does, I do, and I only do what I see the Father do. Now, if you only do what God does and you see whatever God does, you are perfectly sinless. You are righteous. Which of us in this room can claim to be perfectly righteous? Who who here can make a claim like that? How many of us have not lied and stolen and been drunk and and had impure sexual thoughts? How many of us have always honored our parents as we ought to? How many of us have always loved God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? How many of us have always loved our neighbor as ourselves and always been unselfish? Who can say that here? None of us. But Jesus claimed to be perfectly sinless. Folks, these are not the claims of a normal man. Claim number four. Jesus said that he gives life eternal life to whomever he will. 
Jesus claimed sovereignty in election for salvation. I want you to read verse 21 with me. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. Jesus claimed that He decides sovereignly who goes to heaven. In many places, this deep and difficult truth of the election of God in salvation is taught. The Bible says that a certain number of people have been given to Jesus as a gift by God the Father, and that every single one of them will come to Him, and that only they will come to Him. That's what the Bible clearly teaches. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 6. If you just read on to the next chapter, Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. So how do you know if you are one of God's elect? Well, you know if you are coming to Jesus. Because Jesus said, if you come to me, I won't cast you out. I will never turn anyone away who comes to me, said Jesus. But the point is, the reason you are coming to Jesus in the first place is because God the Father is drawing you. Salvation is a sovereign act of God. And it glorifies Him. You didn't get saved because you chose to believe in Jesus. You got saved because you were regenerated by the Holy Spirit and he gave you faith as a gift. You've been saved in the sovereign love of God. Claim number five. Jesus claimed the right to judge the world and that that right had been given to him by the Father, that he had been given the right to judge the world. Let's read verses 22 and then skip down to verse 27. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Verse 27, another piece of the puzzle. And has given him, the Son, authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. So Jesus claimed that he would be the one before all the living and the dead would stand on the day of judgment. And he said that he had been given that right by the Father. Why? Because he was the son of man. Not only was he the son of God, but he had come and lived in a human body. He'd become the son of man. And he had suffered temptation in all things as we suffer temptation. And yet without sin. And so he earned the right. Having lived a pure, sinless, human life. He earned the right to be the judge of all mankind. So... Whom will you stand before on the great and terrible day of judgment? If you are to pass through judgment, you will stand before Jesus Christ. That was the claim he made him about himself. Claim number six. Jesus claimed that he was worthy of the same honor that we give to God. Verse 23. So all judgment has been given to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So Jesus claimed 
that we should treat him just as we treat God. What an utterly insane statement to make about yourself. Imagine I came to you and I said, guys, you must worship me. You must worship me. You must sing songs to me. You must pray to me. And you must trust that when you pray to me, I can do anything that you ask, no matter how miraculous it is. And you must believe everything I say, every word I say to you, you just believe it as the truth. It's the standard of truth, everything I say. That you should offer thanksgiving to me for everything in your life. You must come to me and say thank you for everything you have. And not only that, but you must tell other people about me that they must also come and follow me. I mean, you think I was totally insane. And yet these are the claims that Jesus made about himself. No man ever spoke like this man. So Jesus claimed number seven. Jesus claimed to be the only way for us to escape the day of judgment. The only way to escape judgment is through Jesus Christ. Verse 24, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has, present tense, everlasting life. And shall not, future, come into judgment, but has passed, present, from death into life. Hallelujah. Jesus said, he who hears my word. What word? The word of the gospel that he came preaching. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me. Now I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you believe in the gospel? Do you believe that you are sinful by nature? That you have fallen and rebelled against God in innumerable ways and that the wrath of God abides on you? Do you believe that? Because that's what Jesus taught. That the entire human race is under the wrath of God because of sin. And do you believe that God in his great love, he sent his son to the earth And he crushed his own son for you. He crushed him to pay for your sins so that you could be set free. Do you believe that? That Jesus died for you? Do you believe that he rose from the dead? And that he is alive forevermore, having been given all authority in heaven and on earth? Do you believe that? Have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? Because if you have and you do believe, the Bible's testimony is that you already have eternal life. What a wonderful promise. You are secure. Jesus said, I will raise you up on the last day. You are eternally secure in Him. What a wonderful promise. Claim number eight. Jesus claimed to be able to raise the spiritually dead. Verse 25, this is a very deep theological statement, this. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, in fact, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. This is a very deep thought. Jesus said the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear 
the voice of the Son of God. First thing we have to understand, the Bible's testimony of man is that we're utterly depraved. We are a depraved race of people. What does that mean? That means we're not as bad as we possibly could be. There are certain things in society that keep us in control. But every part of our being has been corrupted by the fall, the, the original sin of our father Adam. Mind, will, emotion, thoughts, desires, every part of us has been corrupted by sin. And because of that, the Bible says we are dead in our transgressions and sins. We are dead. Now I want to ask you a question. Can a dead man do anything to raise himself to life? No, of course not. And can a dead man hear anything? No, of course not. So listen to what Jesus says. He says that the hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So if living in the sense of eternal spiritual life, if living is a consequence of hearing the voice of the Son of God, in other words, you can't live unless you hear the voice of the Son of God. If you are dead, how can you hear the voice of the Son of God? You know what Jesus is basically saying here? It is impossible to get saved. It's impossible. You cannot save yourself. You cannot even hear the voice of, of the, the, the Son of God. When the gospel is preached, it will fall on dead ears and you will simply walk away and reject it until you are given the ability to hear the truth. Now in Scripture, that quickening of an unsaved person to suddenly hear the voice of the Son of God in the gospel and then irresistibly come to Jesus for salvation. That is called in the Bible regeneration. Sometimes called the circumcision of the heart. Sometimes called being born from above. Sometimes called being born again. When the Spirit of God in His sovereign election comes to those who He has decided to save and He opens the ear of a dead man so that he can hear the voice of the Son of God. And then concurrently as that happens, faith is given because you hear and you see and you run to Jesus for salvation irresistibly. That's how salvation works. It is a totally sovereign act of God. So that's claim number eight, that Jesus claimed to be able to raise the spiritually dead those for whom it's impossible to come to God. Claim number nine, the second last of our claims, Jesus claimed to be the source of all life. Verse 26, For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. You know, scientists don't know what life is. They don't know what it is. And they can't explain where it came from. And for all this talk about evolution, it's just mumbo-jumbo. Because what they won't tell you is there's actually at least six types of evolution and only one micro-evolution, and that's, that's variations within kinds of animals. So a dog can become a different type of dog, or even a, a wolf can become a dog, or a dog can become a wolf. There's no problem with that. The Bible speaks of that. 
in, in uh, the book of Genesis, we see that, that um, Noah was to take each animal according to its kind onto the ark. There's variations with its kinds, and we can see that, but it doesn't take billions and billions of years for that to happen. They can, in fact, produce that in birds. They can, they can slowly, by breeding birds, they can change the, the species. No problem with that. The Christian has no problem because that doesn't require billions and billions of years. Anytime you hear an evolutionist say, billions and billions of years ago, here's what you must hear. Far, far away, long, long time ago, in a land far away. That's what you must hear. It's a fairy tale. Because they can't explain anything they teach, and then they just add billions and billions of years, and hopefully all the other types of evolution will then just sort of slip under the door with microevolution. There's macroevolution where one kind becomes another. A banana becomes a giraffe. That's never been proven. They have never observed macroevolution in nature, and they have never produced it in a laboratory. It's unscientific. If you can't observe it, you can't reproduce it in a laboratory. It's unscientific. I don't have time for all the types of evolution, but the one that we want to talk about here, because Jesus said, I have life in myself, is where did life come from? Well, the evolutionist will explain that by something called organic evolution. Organic evolution is that somehow, in a land far away, long, long time ago, hydrogen and some other gases somehow evolved into higher forms of chemicals. That's called chemical evolution. So that all happened then somehow, it just came together and life was formed. No proof for that. Well, flying in the face of the claims of the evolutionist lie the claims of Jesus Christ in verse 26 of the 5th of John. And Jesus says, for as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son to have life in himself. Jesus claimed, I am the very source of life because I contain life in my very being. I am life. Folks, no one ever spoke like this man. Claim number 10, we finish with this. Jesus claimed that a time would come when he would raise all the physically dead. We looked at the spiritually dead earlier. Now he claims to be able to raise the physically dead, and not only that, but he would be able to separate. Once he'd raised all the physically dead, he would know everyone by name, by heart, by deeds. By words, he would know everything about each one and he would be able to separate the good from the bad. Let's read verses 28 and 29. He says, don't marvel at this, at what? Well, at the fact that I am going to judge the world. Don't marvel at that. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear the voice of the Son of God and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Jesus said that death itself could not protect those who were evil from his judgment. They couldn't hide in death because he will raise them from the dead and judge them. And equally, he said that death itself cannot separate us, God's children, from his eternal mercy and love and glory in heaven. Because he will raise us from the dead and say, come into the kingdom prepared by my father. He can raise the physically dead. My 
brothers and my sisters, I think we see that no man ever spoke like this man. When, when we look at the claims of Jesus Christ that he made through the New Testament, the answer to our first question, why is it important to know Jesus? The answer becomes self-evident because if what Jesus claimed about himself is true, it has eternal ramifications. It has gigantic ramifications on each one of us. Jesus made many other claims and promises. He claimed that if you are weary and burdened, if you come to me, Jesus said, I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. So are you here this morning? Are you burdened? Are you carrying a heavy burden that, that is crushing you? Come to Jesus. He'll give you rest, man. Jesus said, I'm able to give you peace. He said, I don't give peace as the world gives peace. You know, you, you get paid your salary and you've got peace of mind for the next sort of two weeks. I've got some cash in the bank account. Jesus said, I don't give peace like that. I give you an eternal peace. I give you a peace that surpasses all understanding. A peace that literally is inconceivable to the human mind. He can give you peace. Jesus said, if you pray to God, this God that we can't see with our eyes, that no one has ever seen, if we pray to him in Jesus' name, he will hear our prayers and he will answer our prayers. That you will never face anything in life alone when you walk with Jesus. Who is this man that makes claims like this about himself? He's your God. He's your Savior. Come to him. Jesus said in John chapter 8, he said, Therefore I, I said to you that you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he, that I am who I claim to be. You will die in your sins. The stakes are high for each one of us, infinitely high. And so I want to summons you today. Why should you reject Jesus and die in your sins? Come to Jesus, repent and believe in the gospel and you will be saved. For the spirit and the bride say come and let him who hears say come and let him who thirsts come, let him drink freely of the water of life. Thanks, Dave.